Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Boat Trader, America's largest boating marketplace, offering easy financing and over 100,000 boat listings to choose from. Sell, find, and finance new or used boats on America's largest boating marketplace. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. When it comes down to it, what are we at our core? We are North American Watchdogs. Hello and welcome to episode number 29 of the North American Waterfowler podcast. My name is Elliot and if you love this podcast or enjoy it, come join us over at Facebook. We've got a podcast group, the North American Waterfowler podcast, where a lot of times if I'm talking about hunts or various things of videos that I've made, I will post it over there. Also, you can get a lot more North American Waterfowler content at patreon.com slash freelance duck hunting where you can draw to come join me on the podcast. And in addition to that, you can draw to come and actually hunt with me this upcoming year. You can win a hunt to do that. So uh, today I am having a guest on, and it is a guy, kid, guy, I don't know. He's a kid, a lot younger than I am. He's a lot younger than I am, not a kid, but um, his name is Keegan. And I'll be talking more about Keegan in a moment, but the whole thing is going to be focused around scouting, on road trips and how to have success on road trips. And, and I'll get into my history with Keegan and why I decided to have him on the podcast as a guest in just a moment. <clears throat> but before we get to that, I do want to also say that my videos are running on YouTube, all of my hunts for the past eight years, but now you can also see them on Roku, Fire TV, Android TV. You can get all the hunts there as well on your big screen. Just search duck hunting and you can see that content there. So update. I, I last time, uh, last episode, I gave it a little Georgie update as we started off the episode and I need to do that again. I've got another, it's man, it's just not going well. It is not going well with Georgie. So as you know, she sliced up her foot, um, shoot about 14, 15 days ago. And I had to scratch her from the HRC finish test. And I'm just so excited to run this little dog in HRC finished and it's just not getting done. Now I should be counting my blessings because the injury that she had is just temporary, but I'm a little more, I'm a little more concerned about what has taken place um, since then. Not majorly concerned, but a little more. So let me tell you what happened. Georgie sliced her foot and I had to pull her out of the last HRC hunt test and Nine, 10 days went by. I took her into the vet um, to get her stitches pulled. During that time, from, from the moment that um, she got stitches, she never limped. She never limped. The area didn't show any pain. She didn't flinch when you touched it. She seemed absolutely fine, but I didn't train her. I didn't do anything. 
I mean, I let her go outside and go to the bathroom and all that stuff. But as far as running her, zero. Didn't do it at all. And the day before I went to get stitches out, I threw just a couple of really short bumpers just to kind of see how she was doing. And she seemed fine. Took her into the vet. Actually made a video of this. I haven't released it yet. Um, I'm working on it. But I made a video of it. When I do get it done, I'll post it on the podcast group. But um, went into the vet. This was Saturday. And the vet pulled her stitches. And I asked the vet, you know, she's a hunting dog. Am I free to train her? And she, he said, she is 100% cleared for all activities. And actually, I've got it on video, him with that back foot. So this cut is right below the elbow on her foot. He was touching it, squeezing it. She was not flinching one bit. And he says, 100% clearance on activities. Now, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm not. I haven't had that many dog injuries. I don't really know how long it takes for a dog injury to heal. And when a vet says to me, 100% clearance, I think 100% clearance. So she hasn't limped for days. Vet says everything looks good. Full clearance. And so I took her to train her, and I did a full training session. We ran about five or six marks. Anywhere from 50 yards to about 120. I ran two blinds on her. And, and then I went over and ran one more blind in the water. That was all land work. And she was perfect. A great training session. No issues. I was getting ready to run her one more water blind. And I was healing her and I was getting ready to send her. And um, she was too focused on something. So I sometimes I'll circle back around and reheal her to kind of get her mind off what she's looking at. I circled back and rehealed her and, and, and I've got this on video. She yelped and immediately that back foot came up the same foot that was injured previously. And I'm like, we're done. No more training. We're done. Then she proceeded to, cause it wasn't bad enough where, um, I didn't feel like I needed to carry her to the truck wasn't it didn't seem like that bad of a deal i mean sometimes dogs will limp in favor you know that happens where dogs will you'll just look at your dog and you'll see them limp in the backyard but this was a little bit different because she she let out an audible yelp and brought her foot up now shortly thereafter she she had her foot down actually she ran to the truck without even limping um so i'm like what is going on but i shut the training session down and i'm just like i don't know what's going on but ever since that moment that area on her foot is really, really sore. The, the, the cut is completely closed. Um, there's nothing coming from it, but it is really, really sore. If I touch, if I touch it and tap it, she like pulls her foot back. You can tell that that, that incision where that incision was hurts really, really bad. Uh, I have consulted with a vet. I, I consulted with, um, an online vet because I've got, I had pictures of the cut, pictures of the stitches, pictures of the actual injury and when it happened. And, and now she's not really, she's not really limping. There are times when you can see her favoring it a little bit, but she's not limping when she walks. She, in fact, she's even, um, my, I saw her standing on two back feet. But that area where that cut was is really, really sore to her. And I'm thinking, what in the heck's going on? But the online, the online vet, after looking at the video, 
um, feels very certain that it's that it's just tissue. So I'm giving her a, like one more day, and if she still acts that sore about it, I'm going to take her back to the vet. Um, but I'm like, what happened in that moment? What's going on that happened in that moment that she went from not having that injury sore at all, all through the ever since she got her stitches, it wasn't sore to the point where she's sore and she's favoring it. And like, you know, you tap on it at all, like tap, tap, tap. And she pulls it back. You can tell it's really, it's really sore. It's not on a joint. It's not on it. It's just in, it's where that incision is. So I'm like, did inside there, did that cut, did that somehow break back open inside the skin? I don't know. It doesn't seem inflamed. It's not like it's bulging out, like it's got fluid in there. It seems the only issue is just, is that you can tell that it hurts her when when any kind of pressure is put on it. So I, I assume I'm going to be that my, we're going to take her to the vet tomorrow. But I just wanted to get about a couple of days because it didn't seem horribly serious. It didn't seem like you know just to see if maybe all of a sudden she's fine. I don't know. But I'm left kind of mad, really mad at myself. I get, I don't know if I should be mad at myself. I'm sure some of you will say that I should be. Because I went from no work back into full training session. I mean, she had, she had been down for 10, 9, like the 9, 10 days at that point without working. And I guess I should have eased her back into it. I guess some of you longer term dog guys may say, oh, what an idiot. You know, you should have eased her back into it. And I don't know. I heard... A, a trained vet say 100% clearance, full activity. So I just thought, okay, she's fine. She hasn't limped forever. She hasn't limped for at that point, six, seven, eight days. She hadn't even limped. The the vet squeezing on that. It's not sore. I mean, I, so I, I guess going back on, I, I should have just been like, okay, I know they said that, but let me do a half session or whatever. I don't know. So I'm uh, more than likely I'm planning on scratching her from, I've got a, HRC finish hunt test Sunday. So that'll be three in a row. I've had to cancel. It's just so disappointing, but I am very, very thankful that this just seems to be a cut and it's not a ligament. It's not, you know, something that, that is going to be a long term. that would be absolutely devastating. And so thank God it's not something like that, that, that is long-term, but still, still very, very disappointing. So, let me get on to a quick comment of the week here, and then I'm going to talk about Keegan and give a little prep to why I would have Keegan on the podcast, and then we'll bring him on here to join us because I'm hoping I'm hoping personally to get a lot out of this from Keegan myself. I think that from what I've seen of Keegan, he's got um, there's something going on with him that he that I need to get that I need him to impart to me to help me this this season so it's time for another comment of the week it's time for the comment of the week all right this comment comes from jeffrey davis and jeffrey davis comments a lot of my videos and i appreciate that jeffrey if you're listening thank you so he says hey guys what's your median distance slash time you travel from home to hunt and that's going to vary with everyone so this is just me personally uh, I will normally speaking, if I'm going to be traveling two hours or more, especially two fifteen or more, it's going to be an overnight. Everything that I hunt a lot is within three and a half hour drive of where I live. I've got some places I hunt that I've got one place that's 15 minutes from me. I've got, 
a place that's 30 minutes. I've got a place, several places that are hours. I've got a place that I hunt a lot that's three and a half hours. But the three and a half hour hunt, as I said, if I'm doing that, I'm staying overnight. <clears throat> um, I will drive 215 there and back if I have to. There's one place. In fact, the place that Matt, Matt Vochi and I, Vachi and I, um, he was the Patreon's hunt giveaway winner season one, year one. He had the hunt of his life. I had one of my hunts of my life. And that drive was, I think, 215. And I've done that drive where we did it over, you know, there and back. I don't, if it's going to be much more than that, do I, I, I want to overnight it. I mean, if you, if I'm getting up, you know, if it's two hour drives, you're probably going to have to get up in the ones, early twos, if you're going to be there by shooting time. And that's pretty early to be making that drive on the way back. That's when you can really get in, fall into being too tired. And then, and, and you'll hear of people that'll run off the road or almost run over the road. Golden boy, the day I met him actually driving home, ran off the road because he fell asleep and almost hit a light pole. So, so if I get much more than that, I, I want to sleep over. And I've got a little one man bivy and we've done that before, like run out the night before sleep in a little one man bivy, just chuck it out there and didn't get a better night's sleep that on like that Friday night and then hunt. And then you're a little more rested for your drive home. We've done that. But, but generally speaking, if it's September or October, I'm normally doing weekends where I'm gone during the weekend and it's over three hours from me when it gets into November, <clears throat> December, and I'm staying around home more, it's between 30 minutes and an hour. Um, but I kind of feel like my comfortable zone, I don't really consistently want to do anything more than an hour and a half. I've got some places that I've been scouting that I, um, I'm going to be hunting, hopefully, if the water's right, that are an hour and a half. And I'll do those every week. But an hour and a half is kind of long. An hour and a half is kind of long. So that was uh, the comment of the week. All right, so I'm about to get Keegan on here, and I'm going to give a little background about Keegan. I was contacted by him, oh, shoot, five, six years ago, probably, and he had been watching my videos, and he reached out to me, and he's like, hey, I live in Arkansas. Uh, I'm looking for some places to turkey hunt. Was, would you be willing to help me? And sometimes if, if I'm contacted by someone uh, and they want help, in my state on certain things. There's times that I will give that help. There's sometimes where I just don't because I don't really want to be public uh, publicizing um, where, where I hunt, what I do, you know, those areas. And I will never give people my hometown marshes necessarily. But sometimes I'll give them a little bit of help. And I gave him quite a bit of help on this turkey hunt. I don't even know how he did on it. Um, but I did give him, I gave him some spots. I used to hunt on public land where I knew there was turkeys and I knew I never hunted before. And he seemed like a good guy. So I, I helped him out with that. The year after that fall, he started coming into Kansas to hunt teal specifically because he's an Arkansas waterfowl hunter. And so he started coming into Kansas and doing a lot of teal hunting. And I would, I would help him out with some stuff at that time. I was pretty guarded with the, with the locations that I, that I told him about. And again, I do not do this for everyone. It's rare. Uh, there's been sometimes people on Patreon. I will. I'll help on Patreon normally, but just regular guys like where where should where should I hunt? Where should I go? I, I don't know. I, I don't normally give specific locations. But there's just something about Keegan I kind of liked, and 
And so I, I did kind of say, Hey, how about this? How about this? But, um, he didn't need my help anyway. He didn't email me. So we talked during that teal season about how he's doing. He was shooting like limits every, every hunt. He was shooting limits and he would come from Arkansas, like two, three weekends in a row. They would drive all the way up, all the way back, all the way up, all the way back. So it kind of ties into the comment of the week and he was shooting limits. It just seemed like every day. And so we kind of got into this pattern where Keegan and I didn't talk a whole lot other than around September, early October. And we would discuss our hunts and share how'd you do, where you've been hunting. Um, and I'd tell him, and we would just kind of talk back and forth about teal hunting. And he started going into Nebraska more. And so he was hunting Nebraska, Kansas. And it got to the point where I felt like I knew him so well that I did kind of talk more about some of my places that I frequent a little more often because I trusted him and, and liked him. And, and the thing I noticed about Keegan is the level of success that he was having it was just incredible for someone that was just traveling to places he had never hunted before. And it was teal season, not mallard season, but the amount of success that he was having was ridiculous. It was unbelievable. And first year, it seemed like he limited out every day. Second year seemed like he was limiting out every day. Third year, he goes into Nebraska. He limits out every day. And I'm like, what in the world is going on with this guy? Where, what, what, cause I'm telling you, unless he just claims that he's on some kind of lucky roll, there's something that Keegan is doing in his preparation of where to hunt, where to set up. In fact, he came to, and this was, this was the kicker on it. He came to my favorite marsh during teal season and if you follow me closely, it was the day Joel Strickland was with me. Jake from chasing green was with me and Georgie got into some blue green algae and I didn't get to hunt her, hunt her. And Keegan, and I, I have a, I have a pretty interesting story about that because he was in the same area. I actually met him in person. We talked because this point we had just been texting back and forth. I never actually met him in person. So we met in person and we were sharing lots of information at that time. And the, the spot that he picked, and I know this marsh like the back of my hand. The spot I picked to hunt compared to the spot he picked to hunt, he his was by far better. There and and um then my now he was willing to physically kill himself to get into that, and maybe that goes into it. But so the whole the whole thing about this podcast I want to try to, to get from Keegan, because I'm I'm gonna be traveling a little more often. It looks like not going to be filming in Kansas, uh, at least not going to be monetizing, not going to be running sponsors or anything like that in Kansas. Cause they've said that it's illegal. And so I'm going to be traveling a little bit more because I still want to make videos and, and do what I'm doing. So what I want to get out of Keegan is tips on what is he doing for the level of success? Cause I'm not joking. When I tell you he and I have been talking during teal season for three or four years I don't hardly recall a single, a single hunt. And again, this is mostly teal, but I do not recall hardly a single hunt where he has not shot his limit. And a lot of times it's like four of them or five of them. And so there's something that this guy's got going on in his mind, the way that he evaluates places, the way that he preps up to the hunt. I don't know, but I'm going to dig and we're going to find out. I'm going to grill him on it. And I'm hoping that he has it thought through because there's a chance 
There is some people, and I think Golden Boy is like this, and I mentioned this to Jordan, and he, he kind of pushed me on what this meant. I had problems articulating it. There are certain people that have a, a sixth sense or a nose for birds, and it's nothing they can even articulate. It's just like innately they make good decisions when it comes to where to scout. First of all, where at what area to go to. Then once you get to the area, what times the day and when to scout. And then when you get your information, picking where to set up in that location. There's some people that just have a sense about it that they can't even articulate. So we're going to find out which one of, of those Keegan is. Is Keegan have that just kind of sense about himself and he can't articulate or is he doing something that's get providing him the amount of success that he's having? Cause I'm telling you the amount of success that he's having is ridiculous going to places he's never been or places he's been, but just evaluating the situation and just being on the birds consistently. So I'm going to do a quick break right now. And then when I come back, we will be talking to Keegan, the scouting ninja. I'll be right back. Well, my goodness gracious, let me tell you the news. My head's been wet with the midnight dew. I've been down on bended knee, talking to the man from Galilee. He spoke to me with a voice so sweet. I thought I heard the shuffle of angels feet. He called my name and my heart stood still. When he said, John, go do my will. Go tell that long-tongued liar. Go and tell that midnight rider. Tell the rambler, the gambler, the backbiter. Tell him that God's gonna cut him down. Tell him that God's gonna cut him down. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why Midway USA offers super fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. All right. Thank you. Welcome back. And I am here with Keegan. Keegan Holman, right? H-O-L-M-A-N? Yes, sir. Keegan Holman. How old are you, Keegan? I'll be 24 in five days, so I'm currently 23, but... Okay, because I referred to you as kid as I was recording, and then I'm like, well, hold on, how old is he? I'm not sure. I, I am 50, so I can call, I can say kid, right? Oh, I, I get I'm still a kid a lot. I still feel like <laughs> I'm a kid, so. <laughs> well, so I went through, now, correct me if I'm wrong, the way that, the first time I talked to you, this is my memory, is that you contacted me about turkey hunting, and we're yeah. looking for some places to hunt, right? Yeah, so on my senior trip, when you know, I guess it was 2017, I contacted you because I was wanting to plan a trip to go turkey hunting after I graduated. Did you ever end up going on that turkey hunt? Yeah, yeah. We actually started where you uh, sent us to, and then we were kind of bouncing around. We 
at the time we didn't really know much what we were doing but we definitely we heard some turkeys where you told us to go and i remember i actually shot one that trip so but did you shoot one at where i where i had sent you no it wasn't there um we ended up going to a different lake that same night and ended right. up hunting in that area so that place that i sent you it ended my turkey career for a long time because I was so incompetent on this set of two hunts in a row. And I won't go into full detail on them, but basically, number one, the first one, I came up to the this clearing and there was th- three jakes out there. And I, I just, it was public and I hadn't, I was going to kill whatever I could. You know, I'm public. I was just going to take whatever. I hit a call and they came running towards me. And all I had to do, I just lost my mind. All I had to do was just sit there and they would have ran right in. I'd have killed them. But in my mind, I had a decoy and I thought, okay, here's what I got to do. I got to run back into the woods, get out my decoy, put my decoy down. I don't know. I, I don't know why I thought I needed to do that. So I did that and, and I set the decoy up right. I mean, these birds were running towards me. I set the decoy up right in between me and where they'd come and look. So they were, so I was in direct view of right behind the decoy. So yeah they're looking at the decoy. They were just going to see me. They, they, they three of them. Yeah. And even at that point, if I had just set the decoy and like ran over 20 yards, I'd have been fine. Cause there wasn't hardly any cover. I, I was basically just sitting there like an idiot. I think I was, uh, I was older than you. I'm trying to think how old I was. Uh, shoot. I, I'm well, not much older than you. 25, 26. This is a while ago. And so I pulled up to, they came right in. I pulled up to shoot them, but because I, I was right in their view, they just took off running and flying. And yeah. I just felt like such a moron. So the next weekend I went out there, I'm like, okay, this time I'm getting out there earlier. I'm going to put the decoy in the field and just sit there and call. And so I sat there with the tree on my back and I, I was probably there a couple hours, just calling, calling, calling every now and then. And I heard something to my left and I looked over to my left and there was this, I just saw the head and shoulders of this gigantic Turkey peeking around a tree and looking at me at like 10 yards. He had snuck up behind me. I've always said, like, if he was a Native American, he'd have slit my throat. And I'd never have known. <laughs> he was right there. I go up. I take a shot. Miss. He runs again. I get off two more shots. Miss on both of those shots. He's still only, like, 30 yards from me, okay? He stops and stands and looks at me. Well, I'm, like, I'm out of shells. I only had three in there. So I'm trying to like fiddle around for more shells. And I look up and he's gone. I was so mad at myself. I labeled myself at that moment, the world's worst turkey hunter. And I bet you I didn't turkey hunt for like six or seven years after that. <laughs> I was so upset, but it's a good spot. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, spot. It, we showed up that I remember that afternoon we showed up there and we got out of the truck and her turkeys got one. And it was, we're like, wow, you know, but yeah, we eventually, didn't get to kill those and moved on. But like I said, that trip, I think we actually, me and my friend, we actually both shot a turkey. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not surprised that you have success because that seems to kind of follow you everywhere that you go is that you, you set out a goal and you have success. So had we talked before you contacted me about that or were you just been watching my videos? No, uh, I just been watching your videos for a long time. Me and I was really close with a buddy back then and me and him were, trying to learn how to duck hunt and, you know, do duck hunt the right way. We felt like, and your videos influenced a lot. So just reached out to you. Yeah. I, I, you, I, you must've liked you automatically. Cause I was like giving you pins of like, go here, go there, go there. I don't know why. But after that, then you started uh, probably that when the next two or three years, had you been up into Kansas 
teal hunting at that time or is that when you after that you started coming in for teal? no so that was the deal was is i i had my license and i had got my license as part of like my graduation gift for kansas so i was trying to figure out ways to use that license as well because here in arkansas our license expire in like june or july no matter when you buy them all right Mm -hmm. as you know it goes at least non-resident goes from like the year you bought it to the following year like the same exact date yeah so i was looking at i was looking at ways to use that license as well right so so then after you turkey hunted it was that fall was when you started making trips into into kansas to teal hunt i'm pretty sure it was that fall i'm that's i kind of have a little rough memory with that but that was my whole deal was i don't know if it was exactly that year and then the following september or if it was the year after turkeys like i went turkey hunting and then decided to do mm-hmm. it right in that within that year year and a half zone there that is when it started right and then from that that year you had tons of success that year and then pretty much after that every year you were either in kansas or nebraska during a lot of september and some of october yeah yeah for sure uh i think there was one year it was the first year we went we went every weekend of till season in kansas and then we hunted opener of the i guess it was the early zone we hunted it until the week before our duck season opened so into the middle of november so literally every weekend we were in kansas for like a month and a half and you were traveling back and forth right a lot of that time. yeah i mean we were i was going to college during the day and working in the afternoons during the week and we were just leaving up on Friday. Sometimes I was, we were leaving when I would like get off of work at like 10, 11 o'clock and just driving through the night and then hunting. Good Lord. I mean, I honestly doing that now, like I haven't gotten much older, but I think <laughs> Seriously. Stuff we did just a few short years ago is crazy. Seriously. I mean, that is like, that, that's definitely college age stuff. I mean, it's like, cause you, you, you burn the candle at both ends like that for very long and you just can't hold up. I mean, because there's oh, your no, whole I, week, your whole week is impacted by lack of sleep at some point. It is. It is. I mean, you, you lose a couple nights rest and then you just, your whole week, you're trying to catch up. Right. Right. And so what I noticed quickly is that you were shooting your limit almost every single I don't recall you reporting to me a single hunt. Now, maybe there was one, but I don't recall because you and I got to the point where we would kind of text a lot during teal season, early season, then we wouldn't talk much. And it was like, how'd you do? And we started kind of sharing a little bit of information, but more just like it's fun talking to people about your hunts and we were texting back and forth. And I don't recall a time where you didn't shoot your limit during those years. No, I actually, last year I got, cause like, I don't, obviously I don't record all my hunts, but I try to like document all the hunts that I've been on. So in the last few years, I've been doing really good about it. But those years, there was not the last, the only time I have not shot a limit in Kansas was the week before our season opened on Big Duck. And mm-hmm. I guess it was 2018. Mm-hmm. Every, even till seasons, like from then on, I've still, uh, going to Kansas has been extremely, extremely good. Well, and you did the same thing in Nebraska two years ago you went to nebraska yeah and you it was the same thing there as well it was just limit after yeah. limit after limit after limit after limit and it's not like you're out there solo hunting which is a, it's so much easier to limit solo i mean you were out there with a lot of sometimes five six guys all right so 
I just became very stunned very quickly at how much success that you, that you were having. Do you have a freelance hunt stats account by chance? Uh, yes, I do. I, I would be I really, to, what, what was, did you keep all your hunts in it last year? Not last year. No, I, I just kept a journal last year. I don't know. I just, I was doing both the year before and then I just, I kind of got lazy last year and just, I was carrying a journal with right. my hunts. That's just what I used. What is your, do you keep like birds per hunt averages over the last few years and that type of data? I have the last few years. I know last year, um, I did my average just for last year. And I remember that off the top of my head. It was like five and a half birds per hunt was my average. It's, uh, that's just, that's just ridiculous, Keegan. That's just absolutely I mean, ridiculous. I don't know what it is over the years. Cause I mean, there were some extremely tough times. And there, I mean, there still is. But uh, I was, I didn't think it was. Yeah, well, 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 well. If your average is 5.5, there's no tough times. <laughs> you can't even, you don't even have any. If you have a 5.5, you have, I mean, in order to pull a 5.5 per average, you can't have any tough times. It doesn't exist. Not with a 5.5. I, I, I mean, I, I know what my personal averages are. So in the last eight years, my average is just over three. I know what uh, Aiden Golden Boy's average is. It's just a little better than that, low threes. Jake comes into the state. I know what his averages are, or close to it. 5.5 is, is unbelievable. And, but and I, I would probably say, like, over the years, mine's probably, like, if, if you go back to when I first started, like, it's probably in the threes as well. That was just last year, for for example. I mean, I just know that right. just I sure. added all that up a sure. while back. But just ever pulling that off in a year is is unbelievable. I know Titus um, from Mid Valley Mercenaries. He's done two years in a row in California. He's over five, um, but that but they can shoot seven. But still, yeah. it's it's just it's just unbelievable. And I mean, I've teal hunted since I've been teal hunting since ninety one, and we do really really well for teal. And I and I consider myself a very very competent waterfowl hunter, especially teal. And so that this is just leading up to the whole reason why that I'm having you on here is that I just have never seen someone come into areas where they don't really know the area and have, have that level, that level of success. So I want, and, and I don't know whether you can even articulate what you're doing to bring yourself to that level of success. Um, but I, that's what I want you to talk about. But before, before we do that, have you heard about the new Kansas regulations that they're probably going to pass? Yeah, so I watched your podcast with Mid Valley Mercenaries this morning on my way to work or listened to mm -hmm. it, and I I'd heard a little bit about that, but I didn't I hadn't heard it like from somebody like you. It was you know pretty mm -hmm. much like yeah, this is probably going to get passed. So it kind of I, I understand it completely. Like I get it. It's going to suck, you know, for a lot of guys, but I understand it. And I'm, I know I'm not going to be able to, you know, go on as many trips and hunt and stuff as much as I want to, but I understand it. And I'm being a conservationist. Like I completely get it. So, yeah. Do you feel you've been at least in September and October, you've put in a lot of quite a bit of time in Kansas and Nebraska. Can you speak to the pressure issue? And if you feel one, do you feel like there's a pressure issue in Kansas and or Nebraska? Yeah, I, on the weekends, especially, I mean, 
I would say I have a lot of weekend experience in these areas. I know from when I spent a week in Nebraska, the pressure was like non-existent during the week. Come Tuesday mm -hmm. to Friday, it was like I was the only ones in the marsh. Um, Kansas on opening weekend and, you know, highly pressured areas or, you know, more known areas, it can end up sleeping in the marsh, you know, from about dark and being out there until you either shoot your ducks or you're ready to go home. But I will know as I've gotten older doing that, you know, sleeping in the marsh and stuff that just becomes to where my hunt is not enjoyable. So I'm trying to trying to get away from doing that as much as I can. Yeah. And I, I will say any any opener is going to be a zoo yeah. in probably any state. I know in Kansas, I avoid openers like crazy. I travel away from openers normally. Now, if I have to do an opener because there's nothing else there, I'll, I will do it. And then typically I'll try to hunt some little spot off. The, I just can't stand that level of people. I just can't stand yeah. it. So I'd rather I'd rather even over the years, like we'll go try to shoot a few wood ducks and and we've had times where it's like, we're just trying to shoot a few wood ducks is when I'm be by people. And all of a sudden, boom, you have this surprise hunt. That's just fantastic. But any, any opener has a lot of pressure. Um, but, um, and certainly yeah, that's what gonna, we try to find do that in Canada. here at home is when, when like it comes to opener, everybody's looking for mallards. I mean, Arkansas is known for mallards, not mm -hmm. necessarily the area that I live in, but, uh, just finding, the last few years we've really done well at finding just little pockets of like green wing teal just because they're mm -hmm. they're easier birds to predict we tried mallards a few times like when i first started and it was like they just never show up i don't know if they're getting jumped off the roost by all the people just disturbed but it yeah. seems like the last three years we just targeted like 150 200 green wing teal and we've been out very successful the first couple of days doing that yeah, I think that's a good strategy. I, I know the early zone opener in Kansas where you've got you you can have a lots of blue wings, decent amount of green wings, gadwall, pintail, some widgeon, and maybe if you're lucky, a, a mallard here or there. And there's been trips where I know um where the trips I'm thinking of specifically that Joel Strickland was was with me and and you will have the big ducks pinned down, but they won't put up with the pressure during the night and in the morning and they'll so you'll have you'll have what you think is the x but there's so many people moving around in the morning and them getting they'll blow out they're just like we can't handle it where the teal are a lot more resistant to yeah. that that type of pressure so i think i think from my experience you're right on with that and if it's an opener where there's just tons of people the big ducks just won't tolerate and they won't come back um to to places that have been pressured. So uh, I want, I, I, they've already stated, and you probably heard on that podcast too, is that filming in Kansas, they're claiming has always been illegal, which I know that it, that's not the way it was interpreted by people. Um, it's a, it's a gray area the way it's written, but, and that it is illegal. And so I'm gonna, I'm planning on doing a little bit more traveling. So what, when you, any, anything you can give me as far as like, when you're traveling to a place that you kind of haven't been before, what do you feel like has been some of the key things as far as where you decide to go? How you, how do you, does your scout day look and how do you decide to set up? What do you feel like, or what do you do that kind of helps you be successful in some of these travel destinations? Well, I think for the most part is like all summer, just scouting, scouting on X or scouting maps in general. 
I do that so much. I still even do it now. Feels like a lot more than I should. I waste a lot of time. I feel like on Onyx, but it obviously helps a lot. Um, as well as when it gets closer to season, whether it's in whichever state I'm going to or the area, I'm like on the phone with the area managers or somebody in that area as much as I can be just to almost feel like I'm there to, you know, mm-hmm. somebody's eyes on the ground translate that back to me and then when I go I know what to expect I'll, you know it can help me a lot more than just going up there and being in an area with you know per se no water or something like that right and do you feel like the information you get from the area managers has it ever been kind of off like uh you felt like maybe wasn't as accurate as what you had expected it to be uh in the past, no, but it seems like as time goes on, I don't know what the deal is, but it just seems like when I call certain area managers, it seems like sometimes they're not giving you the exact information. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's just like how I'm interpreting it or if it's just how it is, but here in the past couple of years, I've called a few areas and it just doesn't seem like it's wound up like they said it was going to be or or was way better than what they you know acted like it was or could have been so i called a lot of managers uh, for our nebraska trip last year and when i got out there there were several times i was like wow that information was peculiar from what i saw but anyway go ahead hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain your feet are carrying the load Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Yeah, I mean, I've had instances like that too, but for the most part, I'm not really just, you know trying to figure out, you know, exactly where the birds are, obviously. That's not what I'm asking. But, you know, just getting water levels, habitat conditions, and just how the summer was generally in that area because the summer and the spring translate to, you know, how good or how long birds are going to stay in the fall. And just by knowing, you know, what's going on during the spring and summer can help out a lot when it comes to hunting in the fall. So how, how many – are you setting tons of pins? Like once you pick an area that you're going to target, you're on Onyx, you're setting pins, you're calling the manager, what, what's your next steps? Yeah, so after I do all that, I guess when it comes closer to season, I'm putting those pins like on areas with water. After I've kind of talked to the managers, mark places initially. Well, then areas like for Nebraska, for example, they give out a list every year, you know, of wetlands and their water conditions, and I'll mark all those on onyx and that really helps to i mean there could be tons of marshes you know and like some of them will be completely dry and the one down the road will be completely full of water so just knowing knowing which ones have what in them and the habitat can help how you hunt and help you when it comes to scouting or help me anyways right so when you get to the area i mean you normally you don't always i mean there have been times where 
some of the success has to be situational because I know there's been sometimes you're like, well, you just pick a marsh and you walk in there and you're still shooting your limit. Um, but still part of that is like picking the right place to go to based on the information you have. It's not like you're walking in, you may not have scouted it, but it's not like you're just randomly walking in. Your decision is still strategic based on satellites and, and, yeah, and what if it's a good year and I have, I try, especially before openers go up a day before to go scout. And by doing that, I mean, I can just go around, you know, scout for birds after I've done all the other scouting, you know, on the internet and Onyx and talking to managers during the summer. I got that extra day ahead of time, which I always try to do before an opener that can obviously help where I'm going to go. Now picking, you know, I've run into instances the last, not last year, for example, but two or three years in the past in Nebraska, where I've had, you know, seven or eight options. And it seems like every option that I've ended up going to the last two or three years in Nebraska has been like my third or fourth, just because when I've showed up at the time I decided to show up, what I was hoping for was not there, you know, with like people or somebody already being there. So I've had to move on to other options, which having that extra day scout obviously really impacts your success as well. How many, how many places do you try to have as far as like going at the, well, let's, let's jump back for a second. So if you wake up and you have a whole day scouting, what is your, what is your routine from the start of the day? How do you attack a a full scout day? Well, normally I just like to go to pick a marsh, preferably, you know, a bigger one, maybe that, I know has teal in it from, you know, area land manager. I've called a few and they've been like, yeah, there's some teal here. Starting off to a spot where I know they're probably already at with good water and just watching at daylight, seeing what's going on. Obviously, that's not going to be the instance, you know, or the same thing happening the next day on an opener. But being in the area and seeing the ducks, then I can transition to other areas. And it's it gets hard especially for teal i don't know i mean i'm sure you know when they're in that thick smart weed you know that can be two yeah. to three feet high and there's been so many times where i've just been sitting in a parking lot and just see a, a hawk or an eagle fly over the, the, the marshal alone and just erupts and you wouldn't even think there was a duck right. out there even any water and by seeing that and a lot of times you know you're obviously having to walk into these areas and find little holes but i know when you're when your day hawk, starts when your day starts, do you have the entire day mapped out? Like I'm going here, then there, then there, then there. You have it all completely yeah, yeah. organized? Yeah, I try to start somewhere and then, you know, make an area around like almost like a big circle back to, you know, either my starting point or where I'm going to end up staying that night. Just to, you know, I don't want to be zigzagging, you know, 50 miles here and 50 miles back. Just, you know, you can use a tank of gas really fast when you're scouting a big area like that, but... Having a plan definitely helps. Once you're there at, at dawn, how much time are you giving it before you move on? Not long at all. I'm just trying to see, you know, the morning fly. Obviously, if there's birds coming there in the morning, I may go back to that spot, you know, in the afternoon and see if they're still there. But for the most part, just staying just a little while, just just seeing too, especially when I get to an area after all summer of not seeing anything or hunting and then just being in an area where I know they're already at, starting out seeing them, it just, you know, puts me in the mood and I just get really, really mm-hmm. amped up and ready to go. So if you see, if you, if you see decent movement in the first five minutes, you're out or you give it. Yeah, I'll be, I'll be trying to move on. I, as I kinda, soon as you're like, okay, I know this is buzzing. Let's go. Yeah. It's kind of like for me, 
turkey scouting here at home like if i hear a gobbler you know and it's like and he's hammering you know in the first few minutes if if it if we're scouting for example i'm running down the road trying to find another one i kind of try to take that you know at first early morning flight just trying to see how much i can see if there's teal there flying around then i may come back to that later in the afternoon or you know midday and see you know how many loaded up in that area because obviously they're not being pressured the day before season very much so. yeah that's the thing with teal if I'm seeing that before, you know, while they're doing it on their own, then that just saves me from having to walk out there and either you jump them or sitting in a parking area and waiting for a hawk to fly over the marsh or mm-hmm. doing something that I don't need to or have to do. Uh, so how much boots on the ground do you do? And and what would what would cause you to get out of your vehicle? Because these marshes, to set the stage, most of these marshes you're talking about are prairie marshes and you can glass you can do a lot of glassing it's not like you know other parts of like i'm sure in arkansas and i know my part of the state where you can't just glass you actually have to get in the field but the places where you're going you can do most scouting you can do through just glassing what would cause you to get out of your car and get boots on ground well it seems like every single time that i'm going to one of these areas is like i said there's i'll find seven or eight that are huntable but there's two to four that i like okay i'll be completely happy with this area or hunting this marsh so those few areas that i find like that i will go and i'll walk into just you see the depth of the water the habitat you know hands-on pretty much and try not to spook the birds obviously but a lot of it has to do with how bad the walk's going to be um, mm-hmm. you know the bottoms in these areas seeing you know what i can tote in not showing because there's been times where i've showed up you know the thing and it's going to be easy walk and half the gear that I try to bring with me, I just, I can't do it. Mm-hmm. So knowing that the day before that also translate into my success of, okay, well, this one's probably out of the question for this many guys. And that's another factor is, you know, how many people you're going to have with you and the hide. I, you know, you can glass from a distance as much as you want, but where you need to be at, obviously if you're hunting with four to six, seven guys, you know, which I don't do a whole lot of, but you could totally not be able to hunt a marsh like you want to, if you don't get in there and put your boots on the ground to see what it's like. Right. Yeah. I'm getting the feeling, and I talked about this before I had you on is that I know that, that you do your due diligence and you have everything in a row, but you're seeing the same things that everyone else is seeing. There's, there's certain people that have a, a sixth sense for, for birds. Um, they've got a nose for the birds is kind of the way that my dad would describe it. I know. I remember one time when I was, when I was little and uh, we went out fishing with my uncle and there was, there was this guy that was with my uncle and my dad, my dad was talking about this guy. So he was an old guy almost with just this mythical sense of this guy just knows how to catch fish. And he couldn't even really describe it. The guy just has a nose for what he's doing. And I think there's a certain number of people because you're, there are people that are scouting that are doing exactly what you're doing, but there's something you're doing different. And unless it's random chance of luck, which I don't think that it is there's you're processing information differently in some way that's allowing you to be, to be more successful because I know a lot of people that come into the city. I know I, I talk to a lot of people and how they're doing. Lots of people shoot limits of teal. Don't get me wrong. 
Lots of people in Kansas and Nebraska shoot limits of teal. Lots of people can come in for weekends and and shoot teal. But you've put how, how you've been doing this like four or five years now, and it's yeah, just it's like over and over and over and over. It, it's past the point of just a good weekend. And 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 I think that like my like I mentioned, Aiden Goldenboy kind of has this. It's just a a sense about. And I'm not even sure you could probably fully, fully put it to words. But after you get all the information, you just make good choices. You make good choices where to scout. You make good choices when to leave. Once you get all the information, you make good choices about when to set up. About the, it's it's something. I think it's something that you're probably not even fully able to to articulate. No, it's not. And I've talked just with my friends before, like about that, about decision making, and. I don't know for me and even for them as they've, you know, they've grown as well. Just like if you're going to do something and you obviously when it comes to hunting, like you want to be successful. If you're going to continue to do something and never and just continue to not be successful, then eventually like, why are you doing it? Or you're not getting the satisfaction that you truly want or that you're trying to receive. Um, But yeah, like you said, I don't know. I, I just seemed to grab that at a very young age of, you know, trying to be whatever I was doing when it comes to hunting, just try to be as successful as I could at it. But I don't right. understand the fully mind game behind it. Yeah. And and the whole teal thing, and like you mentioned this earlier, teal can be very, very difficult to find because you mentioned two to three foot of smart weed. I've seen, I've seen a lot of teal hide in six inches. I mean, blueing teal they can disappear in a marsh yeah, where they're I mean, silent. I, I was scouting a place one. I was walking in ankle deep water and this is a marsh. I know it's close to my house. I, I bet you, I got up within 40, 50 yards of like 75 teal in ankle deep water. Now there was some vegetation, but there was no water kicking. There was no, I mean, they were, and they flush. I had absolutely no idea that they were there. I had absolutely no clue. Blue wing teal, more than any other duck that I've ever seen, can absolutely disappear. And okay. and the and a lot of times, unless there's just thousands of teal in an area, they may be done flying. They may be done flying within the first 45 minutes. It may go until 10, 1030. It may the flight may go until it just depends. But I mean, they can be gone fast where you can go and have a scout progression and okay. Spot number one, you see them, it's the first, let's say you spend 15 minutes there and you see a bunch of teal. And by the time you drive and, and jack around and get to the next place, maybe it's 30 minutes after shooting time and the flight may be over. Yeah, you may not and even so, think there's a duck out there. Right. You may not think there's a duck out there at all. So it's like teal scouting is not as easy. I would even say sometimes teal scouting is more difficult than big duck scouting because big ducks tend to just mill around yeah yeah i'm talking about too a lot with like the noise aspect you're talking about with like all the bugs and all the frogs and things like that that are in the marsh just being extremely loud that time of year it can like even a big group of teal when you get close to them there's so much noise going on you don't even think like you said nothing's even there right yeah and i'll see if you agree with this i i i would say if i'm glass in a marsh and i know the pressure hasn't been ridiculous. The food is fantastic. The water levels. If you can sit there and hear that one little blue wing cadence, you can assume that there's way more yeah. than that one, than that one little, 
one little blue wing because it, it can sure. i mean after so my point being is like it's not like you can scout all day and feed on the ground certainly helps in that if you can bump them up or like you're saying seeing seeing a hawk and whatnot but it's not like if you have an all-day scout it gets harder and harder and harder the scouting does every it second does. after after sunrise right? like like you said for them not they don't fly as long you know as most big ducks or piddle around as much as them and then as the day goes on and people start getting off of work the pressure in these areas just increase and increase 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 like not by hunting pressure like before an opener but just people scouting and out and about yeah well do you have anything else that you want to add about um the topic we've been talking i just wanted to get you on here because i just uh, i just need to pick your brain and i need to cut think of some follow-up questions because um, there's something you've got going on there that's producing some serious success. So do you have anything else, any thoughts rolling on rolling around in your head? I mean, I don't, if you have any, whatever you, if you have anything else to ask me or whatnot. I, I don't, I, I, it's been helpful. Everything you said has been helpful. It's, um, it's not, I mean, it seems, I, it seems pretty basic, you know, if I, when I try to talk about it. That's why I know. And, and that's why I think when it comes down to it is there's just a sense about you. You just have a natural ability to make good decisions once you get all the data. I think that has to be it. Yeah. Um, like, the like organization now. About, go ahead. Like how you talked about today on the, or I heard in your podcast with Mid Valley Mercenaries, you were talking about when people like go on trips, like they're, I kind of consider it like a grind. Like you were grinding. Mm-hmm. Like most right. of the time you're hardly sleeping you're you're out there to hunt and you have a few days to do it like last year in nebraska we were hunting in the morning and then we we may not or may not shoot any birds you know or hardly anything but in the afternoon we were going back out there and i remember last year on opener there was five of us and we shot like nine ducks and we ended up going out that afternoon and we finished our five-man limit just in the mm-hmm. afternoon so i don't know there's it seems to change every single year, but just making right decisions obviously is right. what you've got to do. So pre-scouting with lots of satellite images, lots of research of the areas, lots of calling of managers, <clears throat> trying to get as much time ahead of time, having a very detailed scout day lined up where you're not spending too much time at each location. Um, being willing to, Cause I know like when you hunted my hometown marsh and you guys did so well, you went to the hardest place to get to the mud yeah, hunt. Sure. I, mean, and, I mean, we even talked about it after that. Like we were like, we went to the hardest area. We probably could have, you know, shot a few and then a prettier area, easier to get to area, but we ended up choosing the hardest spot. Yeah. And see the, see you made a better decision that I made that day because my decision was, Here's where the ducks are. The wind was wrong, a little bit wrong to where the spot was, but I'm like, well, it's teal. And so the wind doesn't always have to be. And I, I scouted the same spot you scouted and I didn't see anything on that area of the marsh. And your mind went, this is a great place. There's going to be people hunting. I'll guarantee we can traffic here. And my mind went to here are the birds, even though the winds are a little bit wrong. You diagnosed the air, the whole situation better than I did on that, on that specific hunt. And then you're like, I'm going to kill myself to do it. 
I'm going to walk through the mud. I'm going to sneak around those guys. <laughs> that was awesome. so funny. I hop out of bed and I'll tell that story a different time because I got to get going. My daughter's got a banquet, but that was, that was a fun time. It's like, you call me, there's guys down here. I hop out of bed. I head out there. You're on the phone, like sneaking by them as they're around their campfire to get that spot. <laughs> that was crazy. I'll, I'll never forget that. Huh? And that was a, for that area, that's about as bad an opener as you can get. And you guys, you guys got it done. Yeah. That um, was like the I remember you telling me like this is the driest it's been in a very long time, and right, I remember calling right. the calling the area manager that day. And he's like, "There's a thousand till in the place," and I've yeah. hunted areas in Kansas where early till there's forty thousand till, and then knowing to have success when there's a thousand also, it's you know, it's pretty insane when you think about it like that. Yeah. So certainly in that situation, that's what I'm talking about. It's like once you get there, getting the data and getting information, and just making the right decision. Yeah, you know, and being sure. willing to kill yourself to do it. Yeah, like don't right? don't just obviously like don't take the easy route. Like that was yep. a day where we were just like we're there's probably gonna be people on the banks. Let's just get out here in the middle and just try it, mm -hmm. you know, and it, and it worked. Yep, yep. I didn't. I remember that was the day Georgie got into the blue green algae, and I didn't even get to hunt. Yeah, that was Joel Strickland was down there at that other end of the pool, and uh, he could have shot his limit, but he didn't want to water swat because he had a film uh, camera guy going. So yeah. he, he would have ended up with one, but the, it, anyway, it was a interesting day. I was off washing Georgie and afraid she was going to get sick. It was a terrible day. Yeah. Not for you. Not for you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I was feeling like it was pretty bad when I was walking out of that marsh. Yeah, I bet you were, rough. man. I bet you were. <laughs> That's some nasty stuff. Well, I appreciate you coming on here and, and spending a little bit of time with me. Um, are you going to, are you coming up this fall? Uh, yeah, I plan to, especially now that, the, you know, I may not come up as much due to work and things like that, but mm -hmm. I really would like to come up this year before the regulations probably are going to change. Right, right. All right. Well, let's stay in touch, and I would certainly love to get in a hunt or two together at some point. You're up in the state too much for us not to do that, and I can piggy piggyback your success a little bit. <laughs> for sure, yeah, I'll look forward to it. All right, man. Well, this has been Keegan Holman, Arkansas hunter that's coming up into the area and just having lots of success. And my name is Elliot, and this has been another episode of the North American Waterfowler Podcast. Captain Justin Leake and Meredith McCord for the best fishing action along Panama City Beach. Tune in to Chasing the Sun every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.